Today, we continue with our second sermon in Acts, and I'm going to stay focused on my Bible to make sure my notes don't fly away, or one of you are going to have to run and get them so I can finish my sermon. When I was 12, I became infatuated with a girl. Now, at that point in my life at 12 years old, I don't know how 12-year-olds are today, but at that point, I was a closet girl liker. My friends didn't know that I liked girls yet, and I wasn't admitting it to anybody. But there was a girl that I met at camp who kind of stole my heart, and she hasn't given it back yet today. Um, at 12 years old, I met Jeannie. She was the pastor's kid that had just moved to town, and she was a year older than me. She was in eighth grade. I had to wait. I wasn't allowed to date till I was 16 in my family. Um, it was, uh, we, we, I think we think moved a little slower then. At 14... I was on a walk with my sister. I wasn't walking with the Lord yet, but at 14, I told my sister that I was going to marry Jeannie. And she said, you're nuts. You don't know what you're talking about. You're 14. You know, you don't know, you don't know anything. She was right. I didn't know anything, but proved that I married the girl. Anyway, I had to wait. I wasn't, wasn't dating her yet. We became friends, and we became church boyfriend and girlfriend my freshman year of high school. Uh, we had a, it was a big joke in the youth group that we were just friends because they knew my rule that I wasn't allowed to date till I was 16. So we were just friends. And um, I wasn't walking with the Lord. Jeannie dumped me. And that was a big moment for me. Uh, it affected my relationship with God. It turned me towards trusting in God. At 17, we resolved to marry. We had been dating now for three years and walking with God and walking with each other and had been through some challenges. But at 17, I was 17 when we resolved to marry. We had prayed through it. And at 20, I asked her dad if I could marry her. I made some promises to him that I didn't keep. I had a pretty, uh, pretty uh, high view of how things would turn out financially. It did not go the way that I imagined. Um, so if Ted, you're here or listening, I'm sorry for that. Uh, I didn't do all that I said that I would do in providing for your daughter. And at 21 years old, I married. Seven years we dated. Nine years I knew her. And there was this waiting. There was this waiting for the day when we would be married. That was 35 and a half years ago that we were married. I want to use this as an illustration for what it's like for the church waiting for Christ to return. We're not where we're supposed to be. We're not living the lives that we're called to. We will be glorified with Christ one day. We will have healing that he intended for us. We will live the lives that he intended for us one day. But for now, we wait. And this sermon is looking at how do we wait? How do we wait for God? to work in the church today while we're waiting for Christ's return, while we're waiting for our day that we go home. And I'm going to suggest from this passage in Acts 1, 9 through 26, that we wait patiently, we wait prayerfully, and we wait proactively. So turn with me, if you will, to Acts 1, 9 through 26, and we're just going to read 9 through 11 to begin with. 
Acts 1, 9 through 11. We are waiting for God to work in the church. Acts 1, 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. We are to wait patiently. We have not completed the journey yet. We have not gotten to our healing yet. We have not gotten to the day when every tear will be wiped away and every groaning will be satisfied. We are called to be patient. In verses 9, 10, and 11, in each case, the verses are very clear that there were witnesses to what God did. These witnesses do do something, and we'll look at that, but for the most part, their job is to see it. Their job is to see Jesus raised. They saw him die, they saw him rise from the dead, and now they're seeing him raised from this earth to return to his Father. They are witnesses. This is significant for the rest of the book of Acts. This is significant for how we lead our lives in church. We stand as witnesses to what God is doing. These first witnesses heard what Jesus said. These first witnesses saw what Jesus did. They were never the hero of the story. Jesus was the hero of the story. And in these three verses, the author of, of the book of Acts, Luke, wants us to know that their job here is to watch it and tell the story. And today, we are in the same boat. We're in the same situation. We didn't see him rise from the dead, but we have the Spirit of God in us, and we see how God has changed us, and it's our job to tell our neighbors, to tell our family, to tell our friends, this is what God did for me. This is how he gave me hope. This is how he changed my life. And in the telling, one generation to the next, we encourage them to place their trust in Jesus Christ and the church continues. That's what we're here for. We're here to declare the excellencies of our Savior. We are witnesses of the work of God because of what he's done in our own hearts. They are witnesses. He makes a point of talking about them being raised, Jesus being raised into a cloud. As they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. What's the significance of the cloud? Some have said that maybe the significance of the cloud is that worship moment of God that he's being entering into this holiness. And that could be. But I would argue that the significance of the cloud is just simply that that's what they were looking at. They're describing what actually happened with a physical Jesus as he was raised up and was taken out of their sight. Look at what they're saying. When they had said these things, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took them out of their sight. Jesus was being taken back to the right hand of the Father, and this seems unreal to us. It seems spiritual. And what does spiritual seem to us? Spiritual seems less than solid to us. It feels like a cloud. It feels like a ghost. It feels like you can pass through things, like it's not tangible. C.S. Lewis kind of 
broke my think, changed my thinking on this in his, in his book on the great divorce, called The Great Divorce, where he describes heaven as being far more solid than anything we experience. In fact, we were the ghost-like characters as they stepped on, as people stepped onto the shores of heaven, the grass passed through their feet because what we're going to is going to be very real. And we see this transition that all of us who have faith in Jesus Christ will share in when Jesus returns and descends from heaven and calls us home. When he calls us home, we'll be going to the real life. We'll be going to what is solid and will never change and never end and never be wounded and never fail. This life is a shadow of what's to come. It is not the life that we were longing for. They are witnesses of Jesus ascending back. And as he's taken, you know, why was it important that they could touch his hands and touch his side? Why was it important that he took on flesh again before he ascended? Why did he walk for 40 days on this planet and tell people, and as many as 500 people teach them, I came and this is the work that God has done through me and I've come to build the church to gather together the remnants, the faithful, the witnesses. This is also significant because in the first century, the church radically changed the world. And they were pretty indiscriminately looked down on. It didn't matter if you were Jewish or Roman or Greek. It didn't matter if you were a barbarian. We know we kick around Christians. Christians are the ones that we don't like. The poor people went to the church. The hurting people went to the church. Why in the world did the church flourish? The church flourished because God's spirit fell on people that actually saw this happen and they went to their graves testifying about what God did. They were also hung on crosses and didn't deny what they saw. If you want to have a proof of that Jesus truly rose from the dead and truly was raised into heaven, look at the actions of the disciples and the result of it to this day. That the church flourishes because of these witnesses and it will flourish in the next generation as we witness. This movement of moving into heaven, you think about it as some natural space. Some people have thought of it, well, maybe heaven is just beyond these clouds and next thing you know, we send a ship into heaven and into those heavens that they're describing. Is heaven right there? Is it just past the moon? Is it somewhere in our universe, some tangible place in our universe? The Greeks described it as some mountain up in the clouds where the gods lived and sent lightning bolts down from. No, the heavens are where Jesus was lifted up to the right hand of the Father. And in Acts 2, 33, Peter describes what he knows happened at this moment. Je Jesus, this Jesus, God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. For, for heaven is the place where God reigns and Jesus reigns with him. A spiritual realm is different than the realm that we know, but it doesn't make it any less real. In fact, Again, I'm with C.S. Lewis that this isn't the real, that's the real. And where Jesus reigns and where God reigns is our home. It's not some place in the skies right beyond the clouds. 
It is a place where God reigns that we will go, those of us who believe, and we will, you know, Jerusalem will descend, will reign with Christ, and heaven is the place where God reigns, where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. For now, we are patiently waiting. Verse 10, it says, While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. In this moment, we see the disciples doing the same thing three times in three verses. They're looking up pretty dumbfounded. They're looking up and gazing. The Greek describes this as a continual gazing while God is doing something else. They're watching God do what God does. God has raised Jesus from the dead, and they're still standing there, raising him up into heaven. They're still standing there, staring at a cloud, and he's gone. And no one's breaking the silence. Three times in these verses, we see them staring, looking, gazing. And I don't know that we would be any different. You know, if there's any chance that they missed it or... Maybe they looked away and Jesus was taken up and one of them had to... Ref no, they were all fixed on this. They were fixed on Christ as if Christ was their hope. Because Christ is their hope. They were gazing at Christ. In fact, the charge in Colossians is to fix your eyes on Jesus. Where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Look up and fix your eyes on him. And we don't look at him to see him in the clouds. When he returns, we won't miss it. Just like their departure wasn't missed by the apostles. But for now, we fix our eyes on him through the word of God and through prayer and through the focus of our lives. We focus our lives on Christ and we testify that the living Christ still reigns in our hearts. They are gazing or continually gazing the other action that's taking place is that God the Father is lifting. And they're witnessing to the witnesses to the work that God is doing. This ascension is happening on the Mount of Olives. It says that these, uh, these angels come to them, and Jesus is taken up into heaven, and there's this promise will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And this happens on the Mount of Olives. They have been witnesses to the promise that the temple will fall on the Mount of Olives. They have been witnesses to Jesus' prayers on the Mount of Olives, saying, not my will, but thine be done. They have been witnesses to Jesus' uh, movement in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. This place is the place that they, the, the Muslims were so sure that the Messiah would come through that they put, a, they put a cemetery at the base of the Mount of Olives knowing that Jews can't pass through the cemetery thinking they would hinder the Messiah from returning. That big cemetery that sits at the foot of the Mount of Olives, they think that the grave might keep Jesus from returning. The Messiah... Well, I have news for you. The fact that he left, here's, what the, here's the promise that we are told again and again. Men of Galilee, verse 11, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him come and go into heaven. He's coming back. He's coming back and he's going to make everything new and everything right. And 2,000 years later, 
we can start to live lives. Every generation can start to live lives like, is he really going to come? I mean, do we really live today like today might be the day that we meet him? That first generation had no idea if it was going to happen in their lifetimes. They were hoping it would. They were praying it would. Come, Lord Jesus. And I'm convinced that Jesus, God the Father, ordained a time that would allow everyone to come. And I, for one, am glad that it didn't happen in the first generation and that this gathering of believers will be going into heaven with Jesus because he waited. I am also one that prays for Jesus to come. I see brokenness. I see sin ravaging our nation and our world and our marriages and our lives. And I come, Lord Jesus, is a common prayer for me. Come heal. But on the heels of that, not my will, but thine be done. I trust that you will bring everyone in. I have a granddaughter back there that my son is holding. I want her to be coming. I want her to come. I don't want, it. I don't want to miss her. I want everyone to have a chance to receive Jesus. This promised return is where the church has been living between the ascension and the promised return for 2,000 years. We have been waiting for his return. And I encourage you that while we wait, we wait for God to work patiently. What does patiently look like? Patiently means, it doesn't mean we don't lament, and it doesn't mean that we don't have angst, and it doesn't mean that we aren't afraid, and it doesn't mean that we aren't discouraged and that we're asking God to change things. Patiently means that we trust that God will get, accomplish what he promised. We are fixed on this promise, not the promises of a president, not the promises of a nation, not the promises of a spouse. We are fixed on the promises of Jesus, ultimately. He said he would come for me. And so powerful is that promise that Jesus, on the night before he died, said to his friends, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe in me. And then he went on to describe the place that he was going to prepare for us. And again, affirmed the promise, I'm coming back for you. I won't leave you. Be patient. Live your life as if you believe God made that promise. How do you do that? Right in the middle of anxieties and fears and depression and discouragement and in the midst of the mayhem that is living in the 21st century. We say, but in all this, I trust you, Father. Even though I don't understand what you're doing or how you're doing it, I don't understand what's to become of us, I trust you. It's what the psalmist does again and again in the Psalms. Lament. I don't like this. I don't want this. I wish you would change this, but I trust you. But you are my fortress, and you are my rock, and you will never leave me or forsake me.
Jesus made other promises. I will never leave you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Does that mean we won't lament? <laughs> well, if you've been part of this world, you already know it's going to hurt. And it's going to be hard. And there's pain and suffering. And there's joys and celebrations right, right beside them. There's moments that feel like heaven and there's moments that feel like as far from heaven as we could imagine. Be patient and trust God. Because they saw him leave, the angels suggested that you can know for sure that he will come back for you. Be patient. Also be prayerful. In Luke, I'm sorry, in Acts 1, 12 through 14, we see this call to prayerfulness as really the first action of the church. Well, beyond just watching. They go to prayer. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. This group of people, while they're waiting, they were told to wait in Jerusalem, but they're not just waiting. This isn't just about being patient. There is an activity that we're called to, and it is the first activity that we do while we're waiting. It's prayer. Now, this upper room, we don't know much about the upper room. It says they were staying there. I don't think that means... You can't think about an upper room like in our generation. These houses aren't that big. These places aren't that big. There's not a gathering where 120 people can sit in a second floor somewhere. That's not normal. They would have been stuffed in, everybody that they can get in, but that's where they were gathering. And they, as they gathered, that place that some of them were staying in, and maybe it was the same upper room that they had had the Last Supper in. We don't know. You'll find that in Luke 22, 12. Or maybe it was the mother of uh, the Mary, the mother of, Mar of John Mark, who wrote the book of Mark. We find out that in Acts 12, 12, that she had a house in Jerusalem. Maybe it was her upper room. We don't know what upper room it was. But they were gathering together in their home and fitting in as one. And they were stuffed in doing the inaugural activity of the church, and it is prayer. Maybe they should have been strategizing. Maybe they should have developed a mission statement and a strategy statement for the church. Maybe they should have figured out about giving units and how much they can get in a, you know, how long it's going to take to buy a building. Maybe, I mean, they have it way worse than we have it. They didn't have any books written on church planting. Nobody had, nobody had preceded them on church planting. Jesus just told them, wait for the Holy Spirit. I think they should have been like a little bit afraid and pulled out some paper and gotten a scribe and start putting together a strategy to hit Jerusalem. I don't know how we're going to get to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. I have no idea. But let's just figure out Jerusalem. All right, all those people out there, they, they kind of hate us right now. And, and we're afraid that they want to kill us. So we got to figure out how to do an underground church. Anybody got any ideas? 
Anybody? Prayer. Prayer. The inaugural activity of the church was to acknowledge that we can do nothing if God doesn't show up. They came out of their ministry with Jesus, that three years of being disciples of Jesus. These followers of Jesus are convinced pretty clearly of two things. Jesus will accomplish, will accomplish everything he says he will accomplish. They have been blown away by the resurrection. And number two, we are not the leaders that are going to make this happen. They have been failing all over the place, and they testify to that in all four Gospels. You hear it again and again. We didn't understand. We were arguing. We were lagging behind. At one point, Jesus says, how long do I have to put up with them? I shudder to think how many times he thinks that of us. What this young gathering knows, we desperately need God to work or it won't work. Hence the inaugural activity of prayer. Look at how they're praying. They return to Jerusalem. They, they go to the upper room and they list the names of the people there. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew. And all, in verse 14, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. These guys and girls who couldn't get along and were arguing and came from vastly different perspectives, political backing, you've got a zealot right in there with a fisherman right in there with a tax collector. How are they of one accord? How are they, I mean, do they have to agree on their political positions to be of one accord? Did they have to agree about the narrative of what it's like to live under Rome? The answer is absolutely not. They were of one accord in that they were needed God and they needed God desperately. And so desperate were they for God to work that everything else would wait and they would put aside everything else they would divide on and they would gather together for prayer. They were one accord in the fact that they desperately needed Jesus to continue his work through the power of the Spirit. This is the hope of the church this is the job of the church while we wait to be prayerful. Isn't it ironic that so many of us, me included, think of prayer last? Isn't it ironic that a guy who likes to fix things and have an answer for things and study things and then think, well, I'll ask God to bless what I'm doing, is so backwards compared to what God did with the beginning of the church? Have I not yet been convinced that I cannot do anything eternally without Christ? How desperate are we as a church to be devoted to prayer with one accord? And I think he lists these names like everybody that's here matters. As I look around here and I I see children, and I see elderly, and I see people that are rejoicing, people that are suffering, and I see our church, and I can't see you online right now, but it doesn't mean we don't pray for you and long for you to return when you can. Every person mattered. 
Every person was involved in this time of prayer. They were focused on prayer as if they believed that unless God showed up, they would never have purpose or power or presence of God in what they were doing. How do you build a church? How do you gather together and, and be Christian? Prayer declares what we believe. Prayer says, I need a miracle. No, I'm desperate for a miracle. Prayer says, unless God works, wrap it up. Unless God does something here, we have no hope. This is the founding of the church, and this is what we believe. Today, I'm going to do something different. And right here in the middle of our, my sermon, I'm going to give us a chance to pray. And I know there are introverts that it would just freak them out to do this. But there's a microphone here, and I'm going to open it up. And if people want to come and pray, I, this isn't about do you look good when you pray. This is about, let's keep them short if you decide to come up and pray. But if you don't decide to come up and pray, pray. And there may be silences. Maybe nobody comes up. Pray. Let's be a people. Let's be a church and a people of God that are desperate for God to work. Are you desperate for God to work today? Do you need him? Let's declare it. Let's declare it in prayer. So if you are led by the Spirit to pray publicly, come up and pray and uh, make room for somebody else and maybe five, maybe ten minutes. And I know silences can be uncomfortable. Get over it. Pray. Just pray. And then if you prayed for like, like one minute and you're like, I got nothing else to pray for. Really? You got nothing else to pray for? Ask God to help you pray. And let's pray. Join me. And come as you care to. Lord Jesus, you are the king. You are God. Nothing can compare to you, and there's nothing that we can even fathom that can even come close to understanding your power and the greatness you are. There are a few people here, Lord Jesus, that just feel a little bit scared to pray in public. There are a few people here that have just a burning desire to speak to you, and that's great, Lord. Whether you speak in public, whether you're sitting down and praying just to you, those prayers go to you, Lord Jesus. Whether you're an introvert, extrovert, it makes no difference to you. You love us all. And Lord, I just want to say to you right now, in front of all these people, that I love you and I worship you and I desire to be close to you, Lord God. Regardless how well someone speaks, Regardless how well someone can present themselves in public, charisma or anything, Lord Jesus, all that's nothing. For you alone, Lord Jesus, know the true heart. You can see through the hypocrisy. You can see through just the shallowness of somebody and how they can try to show one face, but you see the truth of the matter. And I ask, Lord God, that you can give reassurance to all those who have a hard time saying the right words, have the hard time of just 
feeling comfortable in these type of situations, Lord, that you hear them, that you are there, and that you love them. For you love us all, Lord God. And I give this prayer, I give myself to you, Lord Jesus. Father, we are so grateful to be here this morning and to hear your word. And I pray that you, like Todd said, unless you do a miracle, nothing's going to happen. God, we desperately need you to do a miracle starting in my heart, in our hearts. God, help us overcome our disbelief, our doubts, that you can even do work in our hearts. God, do a miracle in each of our hearts that we would know that you are the living God, that you are able to change even us. You can change our minds, transform our minds, renew our hearts, that we may be more like Christ. And even if we have a long history of doubt and fear and pain, oh God, do a miracle in our hearts. And then from there, oh God, help us to believe for miracles for the church, your church in Algonquin, that you would show up, you do miracles, and that it would, we would know that it's you, it's not us. It's not the pastor, it's not the elders, it's not the people, but it's your Holy Spirit that we allow through faith to do great, miraculous things and that you will receive all of the glory. And we would know that it's not because of a program or a, a, a personality, but it's your Holy Spirit, God. Please start in our hearts, do miraculous things, change us. And then, God, help us to believe that you are going to do a miracle, even here, even in this country that seems so dark at this moment, that you, you are not faced. You are God Almighty. There is nothing too hard for you. There is nothing too hard for you. And even we're afraid, and even when we have doubt, you have a plan, and you are in control. So, God, glorify yourself through your church and help start in our hearts, God. Do a miracle. Help us to believe that you are able to do these things. Amen. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for bringing us all here and for those that are online. Lord, I just ask that you would touch us all um, with your supernatural love and compassion for everybody. Lord, in this world that's searching and hurting for you, Lord, I just pray that we all could be a witness for you and that we all can um, share the love of Christ with others. Lord, this world is hurting, and I just pray that each one of us will um, reach out to somebody and touch somebody else's life. Lord, and I pray that we would, we would come together and pray for one another and pray for our, our country, Lord, and that Wednesday night in the upper room would be filled. Lord, just filled with online people and people in the congregation, Lord. I just pray that you would call us all to, to um, come and pray and kneel before you. In your name I pray. Heavenly Father, you tell us through, you exhort us through the Apostle Paul in First Timothy and urge that all supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And you say that this is a good thing, 
and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Lord, I pray for those who are in government. I pray for our leaders, the state, national, and world level. I pray for our local leaders. I pray for our hearts that we may be an encouragement and point people to Jesus. Lord, your word says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. We trust you in this. We know that this is your heart in this. Pray for their salvation. Pray for the healing of our nation. Pray for the, uh, the turning and repentance of our hearts toward you. Help us to be a light in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just, Lord, I just right now, I just want to thank you so much, Lord, that we can come to you. We can come to you, Lord, in the spirit and in truth, Lord, in love for one another. God, I think of all the things that, um, Lord, that people are going through today and hardship and trial and suffering. Lord, also the joy and all the good things that are happening in life. Lord, we thank you for all those things. And Lord, we trust you and we are patient with what you are doing in our lives, even if it's tough. God, I think about all the times that we've sinned and um, Lord, we've not done things that are not glorifying to you. Lord, we just thank you that you have a, that you give us grace and mercy. Lord, that you, you tell us that we can start over again with you. Father, I just think about all my coworkers who I'm not reaching out to, or Lord, the people that I could be reaching out to in your spirit. Lord, I pray that you cause me to move and cause all of us in the church here to move. Because God, we need your spirit. We can't do this without you, and we need you, God. We just pray that you'd move powerfully in us. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Father God, I am... Um I thank you for today, Lord. I just, um, I pray that we stand at witnesses to what God is doing today, that we stack stones for the next generation. I, uh, I think about the kids going back to school. I just pray, I pray over each and every one of them. I pray over their spiritual lives, Lord. I pray that we can stack stones for them. I pray that as a mother and as a woman that you help me be brave enough to step out of the boat and keep my eyes on you. That it is not of me, that it is all of you. That you have woven each and every one of us here today into your story. That there has been a plan designed from the very beginning and it is absolutely, it blows my mind and I am on my knees in absolute thanksgiving for all that you've done yesterday, today, and forever, Lord. I just pray that you help us wait patiently and prayerfully and proactively, that you will help us reach those in our community that are hurting, that need that, that love, that in a world that is divided, that you are the one that holds us and everything all together, Lord. I just praise you for all the heartache. I praise you for the joy. I thank you for the highs and lows because 
And in all, you are there. Amen. I just wanted to read a couple prayers that we got coming in the chat on the YouTube stream uh, from Pamela. Heavenly Father, unite our church body our church body to be followers of you. Lord, I ask that you would protect our pastor Todd, Dave, and all the elders that are leaving us that are leading us during every difficulty. I pray, Lord, that you will unite us as we, and that you will continue to transform us so that we are witnesses of Jesus and all he did for us. Amen. Uh, we'll return to prayer in a moment, but we still have one more point in this sermon. <laughs> As we look at this last section, we've seen be patient, we've seen be prayerful, and as I was listening to the prayers of people, I, I just wonder what it was like in that upper room. And I imagine it was pretty close to what we were just doing now. As they were praying and not knowing what God was about to do, and the expectation was is that God would work. And our expectation is that God will work. So I am very thankful for those of you who prayed and for all of you who are praying online and here that uh, it's harder to come up front. As we look at being proactive, I have really one thing that I want you to see in this many verses of 15 to 26. So let me read 15 to 26 and then make a, a comment or two about what it's like to be proactive in the church. Verse 15 says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted to share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, language, Akeldama. Uh, That is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and there be no one to dwell in it. Let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become, must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So the picture is uh, Judas Iscariot has failed, and they are They know that the 12 are going to be sitting on 12 thrones around Jesus, that they have this prominent position of representing the 12 tribes, not individually, but there are 12 apostles with a purpose. And they're down to 11. And Peter reasons that it is the right thing to do. I've got some passages of scripture that talk about what happened to Judas and that it was, we knew it was going to happen. And then he took another passage that says we should pick another. Here's the thing I want you to notice. I go to 
Bible school, and there are debates about whether this is what, they wanted, what God wanted them to do or not. Because by chapter 9, God will pick Saul as an apostle to the Gentiles. Where does he fit in the 12? Should they have done this? They prayed, they casted lots. The scriptures don't say. And I would argue that for many of the decisions that we make when we're being proactive, not one of us hits it like we're Jesus. There's no sense that we have to be perfect. And there are times that God stays neutral on subjects in the scriptures. Think back to when they wanted to build him a temple and he was in the tabernacle and, and God said, you know, go ahead. I didn't ask for it. It was almost embarrassment for them because they wanted really big houses for the king. And how can God be in a tent when the king has a really big house? So they decide they're going to build a really big house for God and God stays neutral. He doesn't say it's a bad thing, doesn't say it's a good thing. He just lets them do it. I would argue that there isn't a church that hits perfectly following God. And that all of us have, make decisions and, and lead in a way. We as, a, we as elders are wrestling through when do we tell the congregation about the building plan and when do we build a building and how do we build a building. And there's no perfect way to do this. We try to follow the Spirit, but the Spirit is more interested in what's happening in our hearts and how we treat each other than how, what we do today, whether we brushed our teeth or not. If you think that following God means that you have to step perfectly, and then you can look at your fellow Christian with pride or your fellow church with pride and say, we got closer, nanny, nanny, boo-boo. I promise you, you've already missed it. Because your attitude is unchristian. Being proactive means we are going to make decisions in this world and lead the best we can, knowing that we're not going to be perfect, knowing that we're not Jesus, but always calling out to Jesus. I think that this moment is a cool moment. They came together. They prayed. They looked for God to lead. They, they picked people the best that they could. And when they picked that person, Matthias, we don't hear much about him ever again. And we'll find out in heaven how that story turned out. And then in Acts 9, God picks Paul. Jesus meets Paul and has this conversion experience that's amazing. And he becomes apostle of the Gentiles. How does this work out? I don't think that God's interested in answering that question. I think what God is interested in, are you following me? And are you stepping out in faith trying to follow me? Being proactive means we start walking. Knowing full well we're sheep and we're going to go astray and we're going to get off and we're not going to hit it perfect. And knowing full well that God is going to change our hearts in the process. That it's a good moment for me to be humiliated and to stand before God saying, what happened there? I didn't imagine that's what would happen. Was that my leadership? Did I fail? I never wanted to be a pastor that would fail. And I believe that the scriptures are saying, stop worrying so much about hitting the perfect step when it comes to things that aren't moral. I'm not talking about issues of sin. I'm talking about decisions that we make to be proactive to build the church, to build our families, 
We are all going to do it differently. There isn't a one-size-fits-all, and God is more interested in our character than he is in hitting some perfect step. He doesn't let us get arrogant about being more perfect than the next person in following Jesus. I love the fact that this first proactive moment, God doesn't give a thumbs up or a thumbs down. He does this and leaves it there. And as we leave the church, we will lead to the best of our ability, but I think he's more interested in how we are talking as we're planning to lead in private than he is about what we say when we lead. He's more interested in our hearts and unity and love. When I was 12, I was infatuated with a girl, but I wasn't walking with Jesus. And Jesus was using that story in my heart. When I was 14, I became friends with Jeannie. That was kissing involved with that friendship. Sorry, Pastor Ted. I was friends with Jeannie, but I wasn't walking with, Je with Jesus yet. Jeannie dumped me, and a depression happened in that summer. A story was being written that God was using in my life humbling me, preparing me, bringing me to a place of brokenness. And in August of that year, when I was 14 years old, God got a hold of my life. And that winter, when I was 15, Jeannie and I began again with Christ at the center of our friendship. When I was 17 years old, Jeannie and I felt like everything was going well and we wanted to seek God's face. Jeannie went off to college and I stayed home. I was the senior. She was a freshman in college. And as she went off, we decided to not communicate with each other, but only communicate with God. We figured if we just let this thing go, we're going to end up married. And we weren't challenging it to see if it's what God wanted. Is that what Christians should do? I have no idea. That's what we did. We were trying to follow God. And in the process, God spoke clearly to us that we were meant to be together. And by that winter, we resolved we are going to marry. We don't know when. I went to my father-in-law. My future father-in-law said, can I marry her out of high school? And he said, uh, no, son. He was very nice about it, but you're going to have to grow up a little bit. And that's the point is that God was growing us up. At 20 years old, I asked Jeannie to marry me, but, but right before that, significantly, two people from my family were moving towards divorce. And I was scared to death. What hope do I have of making a promise that will last? And I had this declaration burn from within me, only in Christ will our marriage last. It's not me who can make a promise that will last a lifetime. It's Christ at the center of our marriage that can make a promise. This story is not a story about how I hit the mark. This is a story about God at work in my messed up life. That's the story of the church. Be patient. Be prayerful. Keep reminding yourself who you trust by the way you pray. And then get up and serve God knowing that in the process, he's going to work on your character, which means it's not going to be all great from our perspective. 
In fact, God will describe great one day. And it might be the sermon that all of you didn't like and I went home feeling like a failure and God worked on my heart. Maybe that was my finest day. Not the day that everybody went home and said, wow, that's the best sermon I ever heard. Because then I pat myself on the back and look, that boy can preach. Maybe that wasn't my finest day. Maybe that was one of my worst. What does it look like for waiting for God to work in the church? It has everything to do with our posture. Be patient, be prayerful, and in faith, be proactive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, hear our prayers. All of us need you desperately. Some of us are plagued with doubts. Some of us are angry right now. Some of us are afraid. Some of us are rejoicing. Some are suffering. Hear our prayers. I'm so thankful that you are a God who intimately hears all of our prayers and is intimately involved in each of our stories. I'm so thankful that this story is just the introduction to our lives. That the, the story that's about to be written because of what Christ has done, the redemption that will be accomplished, the healing, the love, the flourishing, the unity, the... I'm so thankful for the pictures of you holding our tears personally and, and you attentive to the death of each saint and how precious in the sight of God are the death of his saints, your word says. I'm so thankful that Jesus is a high priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses and I declare that we are as weak as any generation that preceded us and that we desperately need you to work. Come, Lord Jesus, come and save us. In Jesus' name, amen.